the After Work Drinks Club, a business podcast where I chat with influential movers and shakers, top achievers, and all-round incredible people. We explore how they've got to where they are and how you can too. If you want to level up, go make your order at the bar, pull up a seat at the table, and join in, because you belong here. I'm your host, Vanessa Sanyauke, the founder and CEO of Girls Talk London a global agency that empowers thousands of women to develop the skills and confidence to succeed in their careers and life. So if you're listening on your morning commute with a coffee, working from home with a cup of tea, or joining us for after-work drinks, consider this your time to laugh, learn, and level up. On the podcast today, we have Sophie Williams, author, activist, and production planner at Netflix. My advice wouldn't be to go out and try to build a brand. My advice would be to always just be front and centre in what you believe and what matters to you. And that sort of becomes what you recognise for. That becomes what people gravitate to you for. Hey everyone, welcome back to the After Work Drinks Club. I'm so happy to have you here once again. I hope you are enjoying the series so far. And thank you for all of your reviews, your messages and your comments. Honestly, every bit of engagement shows us that the podcast is resonating with you. And it also helps other people like you find the gems that are in these conversations. So thank you. Today, we have a really powerful episode with Sophie Williams. Sophie is the author of Millennial Black, an anti-racist ally, a TED speaker and racial equity consultant and activist. In her day job, she is the manager of production planning at Netflix. Before writing her two books, Sophie had a career in advertising, where she has held the positions of chief operating officer and chief financial officer. I actually met Sophie a few years back when I hosted a panel for black women in the workplace and she took part in that event for Girls Talk London. I was super impressed with her story and she's been so supportive ever since around the work that I do with Girls Talk London and gender equality. She also recently interviewed me for her book Millennial Black and I'm so glad that she's on this podcast. One of my favourite things about Sophie is her dedication for creating change. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to follow and subscribe wherever you are listening. And don't forget to leave a review. Welcome to the After Work Drinks Club. How are you today? I'm really good, thank you. How are you doing? I'm good, I'm good. I'm excited for our chat today. Before we get started, we ask all of our guests, um, imagine this is the after work drinks club after work. What would you order at the bar as your drink of choice? Is it a good bar? Yeah, we've got everything. Like your dream drinks, all of the all of the cocktails, the spirits, anything. What would you order? Imagine if you were like, no, I've I've opened an awful bar. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm going to ask you for a pear negroni, please. Ah. I see. I've never had a pear Negroni. Negroni is normally vermouth um, uh, and uh, Campari and uh, gin. So oh, no mixer. Okay. But I would okay. like to add a little bit of pear brandy to that, please, in your good, oh, good bar. Great. Well, we're going we're gonna to toast to that. We ask our guests also at the beginning of each episode to toast to their highlight of the year. So what would that be so far for you? Oh, that's hard to know. 
uh, it's hard actually because I think so many people have had really bad 2020s and 2021s and mm. I feel like we are kind of going to work during the apocalypse um, mm. but I have also had um, some really nice moments and I think probably yeah. the nicest moment for me this year was the publication of my second book that came out in um, April of 2021 and oh, that was a really nice like gratifying moment lots of work coming together in like a physical thing and that's um that's incredible I thought you were going to say that actually I was going to say that's my highlight of the year for you <laughs> I think that's incredible you know you you published not even just um millennial black which I feel like it's just been like I've been anticipating the release of this book but you also um release anti-racist ally and it was literally I think half a year or six to seven months between them so how was that maybe part of the reason you're anticipating it is you were a part of it. I, I got yes. <laughs> to, interview, to turn the tables on what we're doing today and interview Vanessa as part of Millennial Black, talking about blackness and womanness and sort of the millennial experience of work, which I think we don't really talk about. I think lots of our ideas about work are very sort of outdated and unuseful. But in terms of having the two books come out really close together, it's really strange. So anti-racist that I came out first but that was a really quick project for me like I wrote I wrote the whole piece I think in nine days start to finish and Mm. it's a it's a pretty small book but it's still like quite like a intense thing to do over a period of a very short time and I wrote that like a week before I was meant to hand in the manuscript for Millennial Black which is a much bigger much longer project for me and so yeah. it was really strange for me to have the books I wrote second come out first. Yeah. And then six months later have the books I've spent all of this time and energy working on. Um, mm-hmm. Especially because they have such different perceived audiences. Like, yeah. Anti-Racing Sally really appeals to a non-Black audience, but yeah. Millennial Black appeals to a Black audience, although there is stuff in it that we need um, non-Black people to take on board in order to be part of making change. Um, so, yeah, it's been, it's been a really busy couple of years, to be honest. I can imagine. And I guess it's it's it must be a busy, but I know, you know, quite exhausting, I can imagine, you know, in terms of thinking about your work as an author and, and an activist, especially during the time that, your books have come out. It's been a very traumatic time for people of colour um, around the world. Like, how has that been emotionally? Are you, have you had space? I always, I do think about you a lot because it's a heavy, it's a heavy space to be in. And you've got a massive platform, not just with your your work in terms of the, the talks that you give in your, in your books, but the social media aspect in that platform. How are you coping with being in this space? Yeah, as you say, it's it's not always the easiest space to be in, but I think it's a space that needs people to speak in. And when you said your talks, I was like, what is she talking about? And then I remembered, oh, in February, I did a TED talk as well. Exactly, let's not forget that. <laughs> it's been a busy time. Um, yes. And you know it's busy when you can't remember, like, something... Really? Like, oh, yeah, <laughs> I, I just spoke on the biggest platform in the world. Yeah, as you do. <laughs> um, but yeah, I would say bringing out Millennial Black has been a labour of love. It's something that I have been working on before it came out for maybe four years. From identifying the need for it to doing the research, interviewing people like you, 
sort of doing all of that work. But what I didn't anticipate was the stuff that would come, like you said, alongside it, the building of that platform. So if I'm totally honest, I built or I started the official millennial black platform, the official millennial black um, Instagram, because I do not understand Twitter. Um, I started that because my (laughs) whole background has been in advertising for titles, advertising um, for like uh, TV shows or films or things like that. So it's like, if you're having a title that comes out, you don't want to get to launch day, release day, publication day, whatever, and realize that someone else has your handle. So I was just like, I'm mm. just going to do a handle grab. I'm just going to make sure I have this. And then after the murder of George Floyd, and it feels really good to be able to say that, not mm. in like yes. a way, but in a way that I'm not like, oh, I wonder if this person is going to ask me to re-record that and say the tragic death of, like the actual murder. court-defined murder of George Floyd. Mm. I had made a post about allyship, and at that point my account had, 200 followers maybe like just my friends my friends who I was like you know come come and help me like make this title work um (laughs) and then in a matter of days that was at 10,000 20,000 and then that went up to 200,000 in I would say under two weeks Mm. and so that was then another like um interesting area of creation and expectation around output that I hadn't planned for but suddenly I had as you say this huge audience this huge platform these this number of people looking at me and suddenly I had to or I felt I had to find a way to facilitate those conversations to keep that momentum going um yeah yeah I I think it definitely was um I guess was so you kind of had to would you call yourself an influencer I hate that word, but do you know what I mean? Like, how, did you kind of feel like, okay, overnight you've turned into this activist influencer or how did you kind of perceive yourself? Or do you think, okay, no, the mission is still the same? Because once you hit like 200,000, that's quite a big, yeah. Yeah, so the mission's absolutely the same. And also mm-hmm. I did have 200,000 and now I'm about 170. Um, mm-hmm. What I'm seeing is people keep following, but not as quickly as people keep leaving. And so those numbers mm. are consistently falling. And yeah. if I were an influencer in the way that I think you mean when you ask that question, that would be a big mm. problem for me. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm not in that terms. I'm not sort of, and I'm not saying that all influencer work comes from a place of vanity, but my, if 200,000 was like a vanity metric for me, like I'd, I'd reach mm. this sort of number and it started to fall, that would be a problem because if I was relying on that for my income, if I were relying on that for my sense of identity, if I were relying on that for my self, that would be, I think, really difficult. But because I see this as trying to raise issues and facilitate conversations, sometimes people will be more interested in that, sometimes people will be less interested in that. But I'm still going to be there making the posts and having the conversations um, mm-hmm. that people can sort of be part of or not. But in terms of am I influencer, like I have an agent, I do speaking mm-hmm. events and I get freebies, which is fun. Um, but I don't mm. really post about them. So I presume I'm going to stop getting freebies. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I might go to the bottom of the list. list. But I think it's really um, refreshing to hear that because we've experienced that at, at Girls at London and even um, like even my personal Instagram, like we have that kind of 
equilibrium where we lose like some people, like some, some, some followers. And at first I was like, oh my God, like people are actually like unfollowing or we're not growing. But I think you're right. I think when you're kind of focused on your mission, it's like, well, our mission is, it's very, very clear. We're not influencers. You just continue to do the work. It's not necessarily about just having, like you're saying, this kind of like a million followers for what you have to kind of keep focus on that, on the, on the missions. I think it's quite um, great that you're open, open about that. Um, I want to touch on your TED talk because I thought it was really interesting when you were talking about the concept of the glass cliff and then what this means for black women and marginalized groups in the workplace, because a lot of people are familiar with the glass ceiling. But do you want to just give us a bit more context around the glass cliff? Yeah, absolutely. I will just warn you, there is no quick and pithy sound bite for the glass cliff that I've um, <laughs> come up with. That's all right. <laughs> so the glass cliff is essentially what people from underrepresented backgrounds find themselves facing when they manage to break through the glass ceiling. And mm-hmm. so when I talk about underrepresented backgrounds, that can mean all kinds of different things in different countries, and different industries, and different environments. But I'm talking about mm-hmm. the people who in Western society we see represented least often in leadership positions which is Mm -hmm. women and non-white people. So essentially Mm -hmm. anyone who's not white man, it's research into, and the research isn't done by me. It's research from University of Utah, the University of Central Michigan, and the University of Exeter. And it's just looking at what does happen to those people where they break through the glass ceiling and they end up in, or they are appointed to a position of ultimate responsibility within the business. And what we find happens all too often is they don't stay in those businesses. Mm-hmm. And we find that they don't stay because, well, there's a couple of suggestions. Some people think that it's because they're never brought in with the intention of making a space for them. So when mm-hmm. a business has been through a period of consistent marketplace difficulty, that's when we see underrepresented leaders being appointed. But when you're brought into a business that's not performing well, your chances of making it better universally are so low that people don't invest the tools or time in giving you the opportunity to make that better and so what we see is underrepresented leaders are put into those positions then all of the things that went wrong before they joined and Mm. continue to go wrong when they start their role are put on their shoulders as their problem and then they are exited from businesses And so it's just this really difficult position where we want to get more underrepresented people into these positions, but just putting people in those spaces isn't enough if we only put them there without giving them the same tools or consideration that we'd give to anyone else. Like I said, no good soundbite on that yet. (laughs) Yeah, but you know what? I I loved that you were talking about that because I've had these conversations with um, friends and colleagues that even when you look at sort of black uh, female CEOs, especially they're put into sort of a, a business maybe that's struggling and it's kind of like this, okay, we'll send them in to, to, to fix this problem. Um, and, um, and rather than sort of st- typically seeing them going to a business that's kind of thriving, I've, I've seen a lot of examples of they're going in really to fix, to fix issues. And I think, you know, it's good. I think it's great, actually not good that you've called that out because a lot of people necessarily haven't necessarily spoken out about that in terms of that blatantly. So I thought that was really, um, really refreshing. And I mean, have you experienced that yourself in your career? It's hard to know. I think it's really hard mm-hmm. to know when it's happening to you. So what we see mm-hmm. 
when we take race out of the equation is we see that women are often appointed to senior leadership positions because they are not necessarily seen as leaders of transformational change, but because we mm-hmm. see them as having good soft skills. Yeah. I'm not a soft skills person. <laughs> That's not where <laughs> my skill set lies. So I presume if anyone, so I, uh, so for your listeners, my background is I've been a chief operating officer, chief financial officer. I've run my own business and now I um, manage globally production planning for Netflix, all of which are pretty senior roles. If anyone has appointed me to those roles with the expectation that I will be soft and gentle, they've fundamentally misunderstood. <laughs> misunderstood your assignment. <laughs> um, but it's hard to know. I joined Netflix just after that talk in the, like in a global leadership capacity and mm-hmm. was really worried like have I just done this talk and suddenly glass cliffed myself ah yeah I would say so far I don't think so I'm having a nice time okay. there um mm-hmm. I don't know how about you have you personally experienced it do you think yeah yeah um many times <clears throat> many times and um and it's really frustrating because sometimes I've, I've gone into roles and I'm like, oh my God, this is going to be amazing. This is a great opportunity. Like, and then you're like, oh, it's, it's, a, it's a shitstorm basically. And things are messed up. It's a toxic environment. And I just feel, I've felt so many times that I've been set up to fail, um, especially in the corporate workplace. And so I can just really resonate with that. And I think you're right. It's definitely something that needs to be addressed. It's like, okay, why should I as a woman, for example, you know, I've got this wonderful opportunity for a leadership position, but why does it have to be shit, basically? Like, why does it have to be <laughs> with all these challenges? Um, I think it's tough. I think it's really, really tough. Um, and I can't, and I kind of wanted to, to just um, touch, uh, because you kind of touched on your impressive career, and I wanted to, to deep dive a little bit into this. Um, you know, you've, you've worked, as you said, as a COO, as a CFO, from um in many different agencies at top agencies and top companies um and so you know you progress you're a senior woman um in in business and in terms of like your progression because we talk a lot on this one of the themes of this podcast is around how our listeners can level up in their in their lives in their careers you know what how have you done that and what have you learned from your experience in terms of climbing that ladder yeah I think in terms of how I've done that it's I think, a pretty frustrating story for people to hear. Like, I started advertising because someone from Saatchi phoned me and said, would you like to come for an interview here? Yeah. <laughs> so the top agency in the world just calls you, yeah. <laughs> and, like, I did not like it there. I did not have a good time. Mm-hmm. I was one of only okay. two black people. There was quite a lot mm-hmm. of women. Um, and I left very quickly. Um, yeah. So that was sort of having that on my CV, I think, opened up. Um, opportunities within different ad agencies. But I think mm-hmm. what I've learned in terms of making those sort of career shifts is I think it goes back to sort of what I was saying about not having necessarily very good soft skills. Mm-hmm. And so I would say, like, this is wrong, we need to change this, or mm-hmm. I'm not happy about X, Y, or Z, we need to fix that. And so I've always been very forthright and like, right, I, well, I see what you're doing, but we're obviously not going to continue doing that, right? Mm-hmm. And like either pe- either businesses have been willing to sort of change and make those ad- adaptations or I've been very willing to move on. I mm-hmm. have moved on, especially um, earlier on in my career. I moved on maybe 
once every year and a half or something. And I think lots of That's people refreshing. Worry. I think people worry about what that looks like with their careers. But yeah. And I think people buy into this like, we're like a family. You know, I've got to stay with this business because they're good to make that business. Unless it's like a two person, <laughs> like you're working at the kitchen table together. They don't care. Not in yep. your terms. They're yes. going to sacrifice their business for you. So you don't need to sacrifice your happiness, your ambition, what you want to achieve for them. Businesses yeah. are not people. Businesses are run by people. You can have good relationships with people in those businesses, but you being happy, you being fulfilled, you being in a space that feels comfortable and correct for you, I think that's what I have valued more than like, oh, I've just got to stay for three years or it's going to look bad on my CV. Yeah, that's what I've, I've, I've been experiencing that recently because I, my CV is like that. I kind of side hustle. I'm actually now doing Girls to London full-time end of this month now. I'm just like, you know, I'm just going to just focus on this. But I I was kind of, before I kind of decided to focus on this, I was kind of in the um, interviewing because I wasn't happy where I'm, where I'm working right now. Been there for 18 months. Before that, I'd been in, in my previous employer for 18 months. So I kind of had that trajectory for the past couple of years. And the feedback I'll be getting is, oh, you know, you've only been at this place for 18 months. What's wrong? Like in an interview, oh, what's wrong? Oh, you know, you've only... And I kind of in my head felt like, oh, damn, like if I do want to work in, in corporate, do I have to stay in this unhappy environment for three years? I was actually trying to stay in this um, environment for three years because I thought oh, I'll ruin my career. So I think it's, it's refreshing to hear that you're actually saying, do you know what? No, it hasn't hindered you. No. So there you yeah. go. I've moved businesses. I have got businesses to sort of, um, I've been employed for one thing and changed the role to a completely different thing. I sort of, yeah, I'm sorry that that's sort of been your experience of interviewing. I think I've also been asked similar questions, uh, not recently, but earlier on, um, which isn't sort of a comment on your seniority, but just like in the sort of difference of the environments that we're both working in. Yeah. Um, and I just learned to have just a good talk track around it. Just like, well, one, two, three, like because of this, this and that, or what, whatever, like it doesn't matter. So long as you have like something that you can say that sounds compelling like it doesn't it doesn't really matter it doesn't matter as long as you have your reasons for to explain that then you can just kind of keep that conversation moving yeah brilliant one of the things as well because I want to just kind of get a bit clarity so you left you left full-time employment in 2019 if that's correct to start your agency yeah kind of kind of a confusing time so okay. I joined the last um, agency that I was an employee of I joined as the head of production and noticed those of operational things that they were missing and after about a year migrated that role from being head of production to being a chief operating officer we then needed to open a US and uh, Amsterdam incorporations at which point I became the CFO of the US incorporation um mm-hmm. while we were going through that um that process of opening new offices and doing all of that sort of operational stuff one of the founders so it's a business with two co-founders one of the co-founders became really unwell and had to step away from the business for a time. Mm-hmm. And that kind of meant that the other co-founder thought, well, I could get unwell at any time. What am I doing? And went on lots of holidays mm-hmm. with their family and suddenly I was left sort of running this business <laughs> by surprise. Yeah. Um, oh, wow. And so 
we had lots of conversations. We were talking about should we go through um, an acquisitions process or should we go through an investment process? And because of the positions of the, of the leadership at that time, they decided to go through an acquisitions process, which meant essentially that we sold the agency to a really big media group. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was instrumental in sort of making that package and sort of putting that sale together. But I knew from the start wow. that I didn't want to work for that media group because if I did, mm. I would have applied to work there, but I didn't. Mm. And yeah. so I was like, this is what's right for the business. And I think it goes back to what we were saying earlier. This is what's right for the business, but it's not what's right for me. And I mm. don't own that business anything. If they asked me to stay for two years in the new business, I was like, I don't want to. That's not interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, I was COO, CFO, and I was just like, but I was also like, 29 30 and yeah. so I was like who <laughs> it's actually who was going to take me seriously as a COO in my late 20s early 30s like what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to set up a business and do some freelancing and so I went and I freelanced and I freelanced at different agencies and people like Netflix um and then 2020 happened and freelance work just wasn't available in the same sort of way but that mm-hmm. is at the same time that my, um, it's the same time that Josh Floyd was murdered in the street. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. suddenly I had this huge swathe of people looking towards me. And so that's mm-hmm. when I used that time to build up that conversation, to write the second book, to finish off Millennial Black. And so it's all sort of been, I think the annoying thing about my career, did I have conversations like this for podcasts, is mm-hmm. none of it's been planned. It's all just okay. happened. I've always yeah. just been. Like, I will leave jobs without having a new job lined up. I will start my own business without really knowing what that's going to sort of tangibly look like going forward. So I think. Mm-hmm. And how do you, and how do you do that? And how do you, because I, I, I just, just want to unpick that bit. Like, you said that you would leave jobs without anything um, lined up. You would start something like a new business without necessarily planning. Where does that come from? Is it your natural risk taker? You believe in yourself? Where does that come from? I don't think I am a huge risk taker. Um, I do believe in myself. I think I'm really good at what I do. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think, well, I was going to say I don't have a mortgage and I don't have any kids. But I do have a mortgage now, but I don't have any kids and I'm not going to have any kids. And that means I have slightly less responsibility to worry about than some other people mm. have to build into their day-to-day. Some people are just not in a position at all to be able to just walk away from something not knowing what's coming next. Mm-hmm. But I am. When I was 21, I had a place on a PGCE, so teacher training course, that mm. I deferred for a year so I could. I was just, I literally said out loud, I'm never going to be younger have any fewer kids or any fewer mortgages than I have now so I decided it for a year and went to live in Paris and ended up staying there for three years and I think I just had a sense of freedom from not really believing in the way that society is set up I just mm-hmm. don't believe that we have to just follow and then you get married and then you have a baby yeah. and then you buy a house and you enroll them in a good school and you stay there and you like I don't want to do any of that stuff. Yeah. And so I don't have to worry about what it means to sort of set myself up to be able to do that stuff. I want to retire. I want to go live on a beach. That sounds much better, especially if the world's exactly. ending. <laughs> exactly. 
with all these people. Exactly. This whole pandemic, you think, is it, is it, is it time? But I think, I think you're, I think it's, I really resonate with that in terms of, you know, I, I think I've, I've had this battle recently this year in terms of just trying to fight the norms of society. Like you're saying, everyone thinks that you have to be in this, in this box um, and sort of carving out what works, what works well for you looking about um sort of risks and you so in terms of so you were you were freelancing and then um the kind of resurgence of black lives matter movement the murder of of George Floyd and then how did you get into Netflix how did that happen it's really nice so then Netflix someone crashed. called you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course <I'm> sorry <laughs> I'm really bad for Koreans. But- I love it. I love it. <laughs> but why? Okay, so you know, okay, so MNC Sachi at the be- very beginning of your career called you. Netflix called you. What is it about you that made them pick up the phone? That, you know, give us an insight into sort of like, you know, your superpowers. There must be a superpower. People are thinking, actually, we need Sophie. Tell me now. Maybe if I didn't know, it would stop working. Like, I don't know. Maybe they can just, maybe people can just tell I'm unbothered. Like, yeah. You know, people phone me, they're like, do you want to do this thing? I'm like, sure. Mm-hmm. Then if I don't like it, I'm going to stop doing it. And I was very mm-hmm. clear in like the process that I've gone through now. I was just like, mm-hmm. um, I want to be clear that anything I say, I'm not saying as a representative of Netflix, I'm saying as myself outside of my yeah. work. Um, yeah. But yeah, they called me as like, yes, yeah, so I will I will have this conversation with you. I'll sort of go through interviewing. But I'm not going to stop what I'm doing. I'm not going to be careful of what I say on Instagram. I'm not going to be careful of the talks that I give. I'm not going to sort of be a de facto DNI person for you. And mm-hmm. they wanted me to move to another country. And I was like, right, maybe let's put that in as a possibility, as a conversation in 18 months. Because mm-hmm. maybe I won't like it here. Maybe you won't like me. And I think yeah. I'm just quite upfront about stuff. And I'm quite like, not really seduced by the glamour of it. So I'm just like, yeah, we'll give it a go. But I'm very aware that I have the option to just walk away from things when I don't want to. And I think yeah. potentially, I haven't thought about it in, in this way, but I am in a really nice relationship. I really like mm-hmm. my partner, um, which is really lucky because we live in a completely open plan flat. Um, mm-hmm. We did a renovation during lockdown, but until, oh, I saw that. Yeah. Until then, um, the only room with a door in the whole place was the bathroom. So, like, we've been very much like trapped in the same room as each other for almost two years at this point. Mm-hmm. But I think I have really nice relationship. I have a really nice partner who is very supportive of what I want to do, and I try to be very supportive of what he wants to do. And like, it's really useful to have someone whether that's a romantic relationship, whether that's a friendship, whether that's a mentor, like whoever that is, someone who you can just say, I'm thinking about this. Does this seem right to you? Does this seem like mm-hmm. a good idea? Does this seem like, mm-hmm. and like, you don't have to listen to everything that they say. I definitely don't take all of their advice, but it's good to have a sounding board. And I think that yeah. makes things less scary and makes things feel, makes me feel less nervous or alone in trying to do things in an unconventional way and I think just in terms of like putting yourself out there because I know you said you know um yeah just going back to I guess being in this position where people kind of want you on their team and you're able to kind of set your own terms 
do you think it's important for people to put themselves out there, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in an external um, space rather than just focusing internally on doing a good job? How important is it to kind of look at your external personal brand? I, I've sort of, throughout my career, even when I was sort of relatively junior, I've always been interested in the things I'm interested in now. I've always been really outspoken about inclusion. I've always been really outspoken mm-hmm. about race. I've really been outspoken about all of the things that I've now made the sort of cornerstone of my personal brand. Mm-hmm. And up until that just came out of my mouth, I never thought about it as a personal brand. It's just the things that are sort of the non-negotiables in my life. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if I would say having like a public profile is useful. Um, Although now that I have got a public profile, it is quite useful, but it's also a lot of work, um, which I was able to dedicate time to doing, not in terms of profile building, but in terms of having this anti-racism conversation, which happened to be the conversation that people wanted to um, have a cis war in 2020, essentially. And I think um, we need to acknowledge that, like, there was a newspaper that was like, meet Sophie Williams, the unexpected face of Black Lives Matter in the UK. If I am your face of blackness, we have a real problem. I am the whitest black person you can imagine. So I'm aware your listeners can't see me. I am incredibly light-skinned. I'm mixed race. I'm incredibly light-skinned. I have blue eyes. Like, I have incredible proximity to whiteness. And in a white supremacist society, that is an unearned privilege that I have. Mm. And so... But having profile is useful. I think we need to be mindful about where that comes from and what that's in service of. I think it's more useful to have a guiding set of values and principles because I never, like, when I was making a fuss about why am I the only black person in this business? What is this and how is that and why is that and where is it here? Like, mm-hmm. I got in a lot of trouble for that when I was earlier in, in my career. And even when I was a COO, the, wow. one of the founders of the business took me aside and just said, I want you to know you're going to have a much better career if you just stop talking about this stuff. Wow. People have been trying to shut me up about this for a long time. So I don't think it's, my advice wouldn't be to go out and try to build a brand. My advice would be to always just be front and center in what you believe and what matters to you. And that sort of becomes what you're recognised for. That becomes what people gravitate to you for. And it's not always easy. It isn't. Yeah, exactly. It, it kind of has its benefits and its and its challenges. You've said that you're very much upfront about when you're sort of looking at your next move, you know, setting boundaries and being upfront. But a lot of people find that really hard. I struggle with boundaries. I, I I don't know if this is a word, but I used to be until very recently boundaryless. Like I had zero boundaries. It was absolutely shocking. And, you know, I, I suppose better late than never, but I know a lot of people struggle with setting boundaries, being upfront. What tips would you have around sort of, sort of moving into this space? I think people often do find setting boundaries hard. My my experience is I am completely estranged from my parents and I would say essentially my family. And so mm-hmm. from when I was young, 
I remember thinking, I don't like this. I don't like being treated like this. I don't like this experience. This doesn't feel good to me. And when I was in my 20s, I spent a lot of time trying to sort of talk to those people or trying to sort of find solutions. And by my late 20s, I was just like, there aren't solutions here. I'm just going to separate myself from this because I don't believe in it. I don't want to be a part of it. And I think Mm -hmm. that's probably the hardest boundary setting and sort of the most societally um, unexpected. And like, it's hard to say, like, I have no relationship with my family, but I don't Mm -hmm. at all. And I think once, (laughs) so I'm not, so what you should all do is you should all just completely divorce your entire family. Jen said, you don't want to do it works. It's going to feel easy. It's going to be Exactly. <laughs> but you know what? It's funny you say that because I have had to do that um, in the past year. I mean, I've had just toxic family members. And um, I was I watched this Oprah Winfrey clip where she was saying she did the same thing. And she said, you know, sometimes you got a, it's, I can't remember her word for word, but she said basically she was just cut them off. And then she's saying, but I still love you. And when your senses have returned, we might have a conversation. And I was like, ding, 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 ding. Like, and I've had to have some family members where I just don't talk to you anymore. Sorry. Like I love you and I wish you well, but I've just had to sort of just cut them off because it drains you. I just found it really draining, like emotionally. And I feel like since I've done that, I'm much more happier much, much more happier. So I can definitely relate to that in terms of divorcing your family. Sometimes you have to, you know, we're laughing about it, but we have to. You've got to figure out what, is there something in your life that is consistently making you feel bad? Mm -hmm. Okay, what can we do about that? Um, But yeah, I think, I don't really know what to say to give people advice about setting boundaries, but I did read like, probably like an Instagram quote which is like the only people who don't want you to have boundaries are the people who want to overstep your boundaries. I think that's true. Like we can all, we should all be able to accept that we don't get all of everyone all of the time. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. And I think the other side of setting boundaries is I think we need to practice also respecting the boundaries that other people have set and making sure that we Mm. are mindful um, yeah, mindful of those, and we, yeah, it's going to be really hard to set boundaries if you don't have practice of respecting other people's boundaries. So, I mean, like, for it's part of one process. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I mean, in terms of um, the work that you're doing with your activism, you know, in terms of the the, the the concepts and that you talk about in your in your books around race, the intersectional elements, gender, um, it can be. We, we touched on it earlier, but it can be exhausting. But with trolls as well on social media, and I just wondered to kind of just understand, like, how do you manage not just trolls, but even you mentioned that your previous colleague was saying, you know, you need to stop talking about this, but, you know, because of your career like how do you do with trolls and naysayers who were just like oh for god's sake can I have a black this black that like come on like this is just so like exhausting and I think especially in the UK I know obviously the US they've got their own issues but I feel like in the UK it, it, you do have this kind of pushback about oh everything shouldn't be about race why has it always got to be about race how do you deal with all of that kind of negativity and pushback well, one thing is I'm surprised by how little online pushback I get. 
unless okay. I am making, I was really prepared. And I was just like, you know, this is going to be awful. Like sat down with my partner, like, what is my strategy? Do I read these things? Do I reply to them? Do I like blah, 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 like making a little, you know, um, as an ex-advertising person, making a little escalation plan and making, you know, doing all of that <laughs> stuff. Um, yeah. But I get a lot less than I had anticipated, which is good. And mm-hmm. I am incredibly quick on the block button. I love to block Love buttons. it. And love now it. it's yeah. like you can block. And it's like, do you want to block this person? Or do you want to block this person and all future accounts they make? And I'm like, that one. Click that. Yes. That yeah, one. that's the powerful <laughs> button. Yeah. Yeah. I'm also a big fan of the restrict button. Um, mm-hmm. because that means that people who are leaving like shitty comments essentially think they still are and they think people are seeing them and they're sort of you know oh, feeling like oh, yes. no one can see that shouting into a void well done like yeah exactly so I think online there are tools I found and like if if something is even like agreeing with me but like veering in a weird way like that's my mm-hmm. back to the boundaries conversation. That's my space, and I don't need you in it. Like, I think it's like I said mm-hmm. before. I'm not an influencer in those terms. I don't need all of those followers. And so, if you're yes. going to make my life difficult, if you're going to say yes, but what about what about you know all of the what about white lives matters? I'm just going to block you because I just like because you're just not needed here. Don't need you. Yes. Yes, um, I love that. I recently discovered that you can remove followers. So I can go onto your account and I can press remove yeah. this follower and now you don't follow me. I love this. Person. Oh, would you mean this? Yes. Yeah. Really? Follow you'll see. <laughs> do not do that. I will literally be, <laughs> I'll be like, no. <laughs> that is so cool. I had no idea you could do that. Oh my gosh, you learn things every day. And again, if you're ah. on that follow account, you're not going to use that. You're not going to take people out of that. I think earlier we touched on um, my proximity to whiteness and how that is a privilege yes. in our society. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so whilst I am tired, whilst these conversations are exhausting, whilst having to constantly debate the right for black and global majority people to live in safety, that is mm-hmm. exhausting. It is less mm-hmm. exhausting for me as an incredibly white proximate black person than it is for you. And it's less mm. probably exhausting for you than it's for a very, very dark-skinned black person. And it's definitely less exhausting for me than a dark-skinned trans person or a dark-skinned physically disabled person. Like, yeah. all of these different sort of um, elements of our identities, I think, impact how much we have to struggle in the world, how much the world wants to ignore us or how much the world wants to say that actually we don't have the value of other people and my position my proximity to whiteness means that although I'm tired I'm less tired than someone who is facing this really overtly every single day and so it feels worthwhile to do that work and I recognize that I think I think I think it's great that you recognize that as well yeah I definitely think it's really um important and I mean you know, yes, it's it may be less exhausting for you, but you still it's still exhausting nonetheless. It's still exhausting work. And I want to know what's on your joy list. Like, how do you ref- refuel your your energy tank? Yeah, <laughs> it's like you asked me about my career, and I'm like, I don't know. You asked me about boundaries, and I couldn't tell you. You asked me about joy, and I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> what's <Well, Well>, that? <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> if I'm honest, that's not something I am good at. I, okay. uh, I'm glad we're in a bar because I definitely mm-hmm. like to drink in the evening to yeah. decompress because running sort of that platform, doing sort of having conversations around blackness um, and doing the full-time day job and going into businesses um, as part of like a race race and equalities conversation. Mm-hmm. So like I've got lots of things that I'm doing all at the same time, all of which on their own are essentially day jobs. And so mm. I'm not great about sort of taking that time and taking that sort of um, opportunities for rest. But we're avoiding this at the end of September. It's still sunnier than I thought it was. So I'm trying to spend mm. some time like going outside and sitting on a bench. And we live um, very near to like, a koi carp part and so like go and see what the fish are up to so like I'm just trying to like build in like moments to like be outside and breathe in the nature I think it's important but one of the things I do want to ask you is I think it's incredible like not only are you doing all of these things and this might actually be one of those therapeutic things but you literally were renovating <laughs> I mean no you were building a house like I'm sorry what I saw on Instagram like this woman is like you you and your partner had just transformed your place like tell me a bit about that because that's just fascinating to me like how you how you're doing and I don't know how far you've got to as well I'm interested about that I think we've finished which is kind of weird because then like (laughs) I was about to say it's kind of weird because then like what am I going to fill my time up with all of the stuff (laughs) I just told you about I'll fill it up with that yeah exactly yeah that is awesome we've got the keys on Halloween of 2019 which is also the same. So I was in a meeting with the person who was going to become my publisher at HarperCollins. My first time meeting them. During that meeting, I got an email that our sale had been complete and I was able to go and collect my keys. So I went from my first meeting with my publisher to collect the keys to the flat that we'd bought. Um, It was lovely and beautiful and it's a converted um, factory in London, in East London. It's like this completely... Um, open plan mezzanine space and all of those things sound really nice and they are really nice if you don't know a pandemic's coming and you're going to be inside and you're both going to be working (laughs) from home and the only door is to the toilet and so Mm. we were like okay we lived with it for a year a year and a half and then we were like then I started at Netflix, so I was already signed my Netflix contract. I was like, we have to both be able to be on calls, and we can't do that here. Mm-hmm. So, oh, actually, it's even, it's an even, God damn this story. Right. We were like, we need to make some changes. I think we could do this ourselves. So we tried to yes, do this. Oh, yes. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> so the week before Andrew Mason's ally came out, which would have been October 2020, I think, um, we were like, right, let's start our home renovation. Like, I'm there, like, hitting the tiles in the bathroom with a hammer. He's there, like, putting out the bath and putting it in the living room. And I'm making merch at the same time to send to influencers for my book. And I'm having to put the merch in the bath and the bath is in the living room and, like, the cat's everywhere and, like, it's a hassle. Yeah. We then find out, actually, there's a reason that um, the... There's a reason that you employ builders to do this work because they like it <laughs> and they're good at it. Yes. And I have underestimated yeah. the skill 
and knowledge of tradespeople, which I will never do again. I was like, mm. I can do this. This is a laugh. It's not a laugh. And then we went into another lockdown and mm. we couldn't get anyone to, <laughs> to fix the mess we'd made. So for about six months, we, um, that, we were, remember I was like, oh, we have one door in our house and it's to the bathroom. Not anymore. Like, we just completely ruined everything about the Oh, God. Oh, it was the worst. So then we're like, okay, we'll leave it. We'll get um, a professional to come. And they came and they made it all nice. But I remember, like, the day before Anne Trace and I came out, just crying, sitting on the bathroom floor with a, with oh, a no. bucket full of grout. Being like, it's meant to be my big day. Why is it like this? Why, why oh, am I trying no. to grout something? I don't know how to do this. Like, it was awful. Oh, my gosh. Um, but then we were also doing renovation the day that um, Millennial Black came out. And mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's been, it's been a process. And I guess I hadn't really realised how how those two sort of creative projects had happened at the same time. It seemed to always need to be like changing something in my home environment when a book's coming out. That seems to be sort of how I do it now. Yeah, you're, so I don't know what you're going to do when your, when your next book comes out. It will be like, oh, I've just bought this new <laughs> X. Exactly. It would be fun to try and build something on an allotment. That's all <laughs> Oh, we're so waiting, waiting in anticipation. But um, but no, I, that that that's actually quite interesting. Actually, I think I think the moral of the story is sometimes it might look glamorous and fun, but you're saying the reality is 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 not is not easy. No, it's a nightmare. It's, yeah. it's a living nightmare. But I learned a lot, and I do not like um, being a plumber, so I'm not going to be anymore. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, exactly. We need you. We need you in other areas. We need you in other areas. We're going to just wrap up with a quick fire round. So we ask all of our guests, we just ask you a few questions and you've got to just tell me the first answer that comes to your head and keep it like quite quick. So the first question of the quick fire round is tell um, us about the trip that changed your life or that was the most memorable. I guess the trip that changed my life most was when I planned to go to Paris for a couple of months and ended up staying for nearly three years I think that yes. sort of showed me that I could do stuff on my own and showed me that I could figure things out when I'm in a crunch which I think is a lesson yeah. I needed in my early 20s. If you mess up big time at work who do you call and why? I call John Egan. John is my boss. He will tell me what to do. Oh uh, <laughs> that's good that you had that good relationship with him. Yeah he's not really good. Um, What's been the toughest time in your career? I think I was unhappy in a lot of what I was doing early on in my career because I was working in advertising in London and it just wasn't made for people who weren't both white and male. So I'd think mm-hmm. make a 10-year period was the worst time in my career before I wow. sort of figured out who I was and what I would and, would and wouldn't um, tolerate, which comes back to that boundaries conversation. Yeah. What is the single most important thing our listeners can do to level up in their careers? What would be like your one takeaway? Use your friends network. So in my book, Millennial Black, I talk a lot about lady gangs, which is mm-hmm. a group of people of any and all genders who you invest in and they invest right back in you. And it's a, mm-hmm. a play on um, Shine Theory, which is um, a construct by Anne Friedman and Aminatou So. And it's just about... You know those um, 
it's based essentially on killer's lyrics. It's like, I don't shine if you oh, don't gosh. shine. Or uh, yeah. for, for the modern listener, Lizzo, <laughs> if I'm shining, everybody's going to shine. <laughs> we have to stop viewing people as um, com- competition and realize mm. that they are potential collaborators. And if that person exactly. is cool, then you having a good relationship with them only up levels you. It doesn't damage you in any way. You are known by the company that you keep. Yeah, brilliant. I love that. A, a great way to end and wrap up this interview. Thank you so much, Sophie. It's been great to have you on. Um, where do you want people to follow you on? At Official Millennial Black. My personal one is just like nonsense memes. And I like to focus <laughs> on that, like imagining that no one else can see it. So Official Millennial Black for any sort of um, information that you want or need. Brilliant. Each episode we will have a debrief and download with the producer of this series, Ryan. So welcome, Ryan. Thank you for having me once again. That was good. It was interesting, actually. When she was talking about her boundaries, that is what I got. Like, Sophie's someone that does what she wants to do. That was the key takeaway for me. Oh, massively. Um, Because it is something that most people find really difficult to do, but it's something that Sophie really exudes, that she can set a boundary. She's really upfront. She's very clear when you're very clear, it's easier for other people to understand, um, you know, what you can and can't do. But then that also relates to why she does get called for opportunities, because it's very clear what she brings to the table, what she stands yeah. for. So she's top of mind for exactly. opportunities. So the two things do link together. It's, it's Yeah, it is. And I think it's, um, there's a the bit where she kind of just said, oh, you know, I was 29 and 30, but I wouldn't get taken seriously as a COO or a CFO. And I just thought, we didn't necessarily go too deep into that, but because I just, I knew where she was coming from, it, it just kind of highlighted how backward the world still is. So yeah. we put an emphasis on age in terms of seniority and that whole issue around, you have to have 55 years of experience in one company mm. to be deemed professional it just highlighted that we're just so behind in so many aspects in this world yeah so behind and um it's so frustrating but what was good is that she recognized that she so her life and her work is in changing that but also recognizing Mm -hmm. that she's on the end of that and Mm -hmm. she's made decisions to to counter that because why make it harder you know let me just I, I, i love how she just changes like every when she needs to don't worry about changing your job every 18 months. It's more exactly. important that you are clear about what you stand for and you can communicate that. That to me was just so powerful. Yeah, so powerful. And she and I love the how she when she was negotiating her Netflix terms and conditions, she was like, Well, actually, I might not even want to stay with the company for that long. So you think I'm yeah. gonna move? Not right now. I just thought that is just like a boss. Like move, and I just felt like, yeah, I just thought to myself, Vanessa, you are just letting people, you're beating to the drum of other people. Like that Mm. just what really sort of made that clear. Like she is, she dances the beat of her own drum. And I think it's really important that we become a bit more brave in how we negotiate um, terms and conditions. I thought that was really Definitely. Do you know what? Like when you say terms and conditions, actually that is what she stands for, isn't it? She has her own terms and conditions. Yes. Everyone she works with, what she's trying to do with regards to activism, you know, these are our terms and conditions. And that is so powerful if you think about it. It is. And if we could, if we could just take a, 
a little bit of that and apply it into our own lives and careers, um, I'm sure we will all level up. Exactly. That's it. Terms and conditions. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good way to summarise that. I really hope you enjoyed this episode and for joining me for After Work Drinks. If you learned anything from this episode, please do share with someone you think would benefit. Don't forget to leave me a comment with what you learned along with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people like yourself find the show. Follow us on Instagram on at After Work Drinks Club. A special thank you goes to Blue Water and to Pure Creation Media for producing this episode.